All right, welcome back to another episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. So hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Yes, I know, I just repeated that name, it's so you don't forget it. So it's just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, let's introduce you to our guest, Christopher Rocchio. Did I pronounce it right this time? Yes, you did. Oh, thanks for having me. I did it 12 times the last time we recorded you, but that was when our previous hosting platform uh, hated itself and like committed Harry Carey or something, and we had to find StreamYards. StreamYards <laughs> is great, by the way, people. We love them. They make it idiot-proof, JR-proof even. Uh, but So we interviewed you before about this, and it didn't... It didn't go on the air, so we're going to try it again. And that means this is number 13 where I say his name and finally got it right. <laughs> so, Well, I'll try to ramble less this time, too. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. We were even sober last time, so it's not like the bar is very low. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about you, who you are? Uh, yeah. So my name is Christopher Rocchio. I'm the author of the Sun Eater Science Fantasy Series from Daw Books. And I'm the junior editor at Bane Books, where I've worked with uh, sci-fi fantasy writers like uh, David Weber, Larry Correa, Lois Bujold for... Gosh, uh, six years now I've been doing that. I started as an intern in college, and I've been just going straight on through. Um, so it's so a little bit. You finally talked him into paying you, though, I hope. Yes, yeah, after the first year. Okay, that's smart. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it took a minute. Uh, but they finally, you know, I graduated. I don't have to do the grocery store runs anymore. So, Do you still have to get the coffee and sweep the floor, though? No, no, we got someone for that now. Uh, I've moved up just one notch. Yeah. All right, so pretty soon they're going to let you make the fries. But it's yes. a small company, so one notch is a big, big notch. Yeah, the downside, of course, is it's the only notch I'm going to get. So I, I've made, yeah, I'm at fries, but I'm, I'm never going to be a line, uh, proper line cook. Yeah, dang it. What, maybe one day they'll let you wash the lettuce. And if you don't get the reference, people, you're probably too young, and we forgive you. <laughs> but, well, uh, I was actually worked in a restaurant for eight years, so I thought that's where we were going. Oh, uh, no, coming to America, the, the fake McDonald's. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> Excellent movie. You should watch it. They're making a part two, I guess. I don't know. It's it's out. No, no, they made it. They made it's it already. Out. Yeah. It's already out. That, okay. Well, we're not a movie review show today. We might do sci-fi movies, but not that one. Um, so now is the fun part. So we're going to ask, Seska, how did you find uh, Mr. Rocchio? I met him when he was just the Bane intern, actually. Uh, it was at a Liberty Con, and he had just been announced as the Bane intern. And I looked at him, and I went, so how does that feel? And he goes, it's a little intimidating, because I have these people now coming, trying to find me. <laughs> and they all know who I am, and I don't know who they are. <laughs> like You knew the names. You were very well-versed in the literature you were going to be working with. But you did... you physically could not tell the difference between like David Weber and John Ringo if we held up pictures <laughs> yet. And they are very different if anybody's ever seen them. Well, in, in his defense, one thing we learned when we interviewed uh, Declan Finn is that if you just put on a weird hat or a bright colored like uh, jacket, people just magically can't recognize you anymore when you take it off. So he had the Clark Kent thing going in his, in his defense. That is the truth. Declan's a snappy dresser, so. Is yeah, that bright orange? I think it's orange. I'm colorblind, but it's uh, bright. Yeah, it yellow. is. Or yeah, is it I was yellow? Going, it's been a minute. It's a yellow blazer. He just told me, and I thought he said orange because I can't tell the difference. But I don't think Declan can either. 
Is he colorblind too? Wow. Okay. We're going to have to get no him idea. on now that we can do fantasy. Speaking of, so I actually found uh, found Christopher uh, through you last time. And then since then, we we nerd out all the time over books and philosophy Whoa. and history. And Elvis even likes him. So that's a plus. So yeah, uh, it just released today at the time of recording. Today is Thursday. Uh, our episode where we interviewed author Aaron A.C. Haskins, and it came up about the Bain Free Library, but he's a new author for you, and he got a little bit confused. So I thought, is since you work for them, you might take a minute and sort of clarify all the the perks that you do for your readers before we jump into talking about your books and you. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, the Bain Free Library is something we've been doing since I think the '90s. We actually did eBooks before they were called eBooks. Uh, and uh, what we do is we have a curated uh, collection of books, usually first in series, some science fiction, some fantasy, some alternate history, uh, even some nonfiction pieces we publish on the website, short story collections too, uh, that are up there absolutely for free and DRM free. Uh, so you can copy them, move them to whatever device you want. Um, and it's a great way uh, if you are between uh, between authors, between reads, to find something new. Uh, usually, as I say, these are the first in series going back, you know, uh, to the '90s even. So we, you'll find something that'll get you started with, you know, twenty volume adventure. I think the first two books of David Weber's Honor Harrington series, for instance, are up there for free. Um, I think it's the only one you get two books of for free up there. But uh, but uh, you get that stuff. Uh, we also uh, will put up our advanced reader copies uh, in ebook form. Um, not for free, uh, but well in advance of the release. So if you uh, uh, find something you like and you don't want to wait for the new release, you don't have to. You can uh, buy that ebook early. You can buy it in its original, uh, unedited, unproofed form. So you can find uh, you, you'll find also that way that books sort of change. So you sometimes get to see the story in two kind of forms, which is kind of neat. But as I say, you don't get to wait. So those are two things that I can't think of another publisher, particularly a traditional mainstream publisher in science fiction uh, doing. I think those are unique to us. Uh, and uh, it's a great way to to get into some new reads. Yeah, no, and they're actually a really good price point for what it is because the advanced e-reader e e-book copies tend to be about $15, which yeah, if 15. you're buying, a, that's less than a hardcover if you go into a Barnes & Noble or Amazon, so. Yeah, and if it's something you really like, right, you know, if it's a Larry Correa title, David Weber title, uh, everything we do put out goes up early, in, or almost mm -hmm. everything, I should say, uh, goes up early in New York form, so you can check that out well in advance, sometimes as much as like eight months in advance, they're very, very outside, um, so it's kind and of- And all cool of way. your ebooks, right, are DRM free, so if I wanted to buy, say, um, We Shall Rise, which is going to be the new uh, Black Tide Rising anthology- I could go in there and buy the, or if say I wanted to even buy um, Last Judgment by Ringo and the one he did a couple months ago, mm -hmm. I could go in and buy the ebook from you guys and get it in what every format DRM free, right? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. There are like eight or nine formats I think that are oh. up there. You got all their big ones, right? Yeah, Movie, and I, EPUB. Uh, I know. You can even get an RTF if you want, um, <laughs> uh, for whatever reason. Um, but, uh, but they are up there. Uh, and yeah, no, no, they're DRM free readers are not criminals. Uh, we have always felt that way. We've never put DRM in our books. We never will. Uh, because as I say, readers are not criminals in this way too, just as with a print book, you could lend it to a friend, you can make a copy and you know, we, it's never, never hurt us, um, to trust our readers. Um, mm -hmm. as, uh, as shocking as that may seem to, uh, some people, uh, well, uh so, so we feel so pretty strongly is, about that. 
so for listeners who might not know what DRM is, can you give them the, like the Reader's Digest version? Yeah, very briefly. It's a way of locking down the file so that you can't copy it or run it on parallel devices. It's a license, basically, um, so that you it makes it harder to pirate or to duplicate or something like yeah. that. So you can't do the equivalent of Netflix password sharing, basically. Um, so it, but what it means for me as somebody who like, I ha I went I've switched devices before and um I could get it in whatever format I need it in and re-download it to my new Nook, for example. Yeah. But the other thing also I love that you guys have done for readers who are and I've seen the posts in different reading groups of hey, what way works best for you, the author, where you get the most profit value? And you guys actually though, you if it's a digital book you buy through Bain, you give a nicer percentage yeah well when uh whenever you sell an ebook right uh or whenever you sell a book period the the merchant gets a cut right uh so amazon gets their bit uh or barnes and noble or whoever uh, if you buy ebooks directly from us um the merchant is the publisher so there's not that extra split and we forward the extra you know the extra bit of that cut to the author instead because we're still getting ours you know uh, yeah. So if you do want to support any of our authors the, and you are an ebook reader, right, the best way to do that is to buy straight from uh, Bain.com. The file will work on your Kindle or your Nook just fine. Um, you know, uh, it'll work exactly like you get it from Amazon. You just have to buy it through a different website. Uh, it's B-A-E-N.com. And the writers will get a little bit more out of that. Uh, very often, actually, especially the bigger names, the authors will earn their advances out in that advanced reader copy stage. Uh, since that wow. uh, that book is selling at a premium, right? The author gets more if you buy that, too. Uh, worth noting. Because oh, wow. uh, I know folks like to like to support their authors. So do you do anything oh. like that with your audiobooks before? And then we'll move on uh, to talking about your books? Yeah, no. Uh, the audios are all done uh, through uh, Tantor Media recorded books. Uh, so they're we're they're actually the publisher on that. We've we've okay. provided them, uh, you know, a sub rights license to go and 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 produce what they've already done. Uh, that said, there are actually two fully voiced and acted radio dramas that are for sale on uh, Bane.com. Uh, Larry Korea's Last Christmas and Eric Flint's Islands. Just uh, we did that as an experiment, sort of a fun thing to do. <laughs> so you can get those. Uh, and if you've never listened to them, they are awesome. Uh, Tony Daniel did the screenplays for them, or I guess the sound plays, and uh, really knocked it out of the park. They're they're awesome if you haven't listened to those. So how much would it cost to get you to drive to our house to read the books to us? Um, oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have to get back to you on that one. I gotta, gotta, <laughs> gotta, back. gotta crunch some numbers. Um, <laughs> All right, figure so, out how much gas is going to be. Whoo! Don't yeah. want, I don't want to think about that. No. All right, so so we don't think about that. You get to ask him the important question, the religion. Question, okay, so that. on to religion. Since this is a space fantasy one, we're going to do both. Uh, what sci-fi religion first? Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Oh gosh. Uh, man, uh, I might be an atheist now. Uh, I'm an Orthodox <laughs> Star Wars fan. Um, let's Whoa, say. He's uh, so specific. <laughs> well, no, I mean, Orthodox, only the original canon before Diz got his hands on let's it. Let's say before 2015. Yeah. Cause I, I was young enough to enjoy the prequels and they came okay. out. I know, I know that leaves a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. You're a baby. It's okay. Yeah. The lightsaber fights were cool. Uh, I, Pod racing's awesome. 
Uh, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't have anything else to say about that. The, the but, nerd uh, fights over the physics of the pod racing were hilarious. They're like, no, he would die. It would implode from the floor. I'm like, of course they would it's, die. It's, it's just relax and enjoy it. It's fine. Um, just yeah, and, and the, the video game was great. I don't know if you ever played the N64 game. Uh, but, uh, but it's awesome. I think actually uh, that's one of the few I did. Uh, it's really great, and uh, that really made those uh, that that movie good for me when I was a kid. Was playing that game, so I I, I can't hate the prequels, but uh, I don't have much nice to say about the new stuff. Uh, Rogue One was good, I guess, um, but uh, let's let's leave it there. Well, how okay? So on to fantasy, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or Potterverse. Uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, he said, quoting <laughs> Henry Cavill uh, in the meme. No, Lord of the Rings. Uh, it, it, not even a contest for me. Uh, Tolkien uh, really made me want to be a writer. Uh, and that's a pretty cliched thing. You hear a lot of writers say that. But it, I uh, I must have read Lord of the Rings a hundred times when I was a kid. I got the I got the audiobooks uh, on CD, right? Oh, wow. Um, and so I – and I didn't have any other audiobooks because audiobooks, when they were on CD, were hugely expensive. Um, but I had read the Hobbit and when I was like four and I couldn't quite crack Lord of the Rings. So they got me the audio. They figured that'd be easier. My parents being the, they here. And, uh, I must've gotten through to the end and then put the first CD back in and just kept going. Um, though <laughs> no, I really, when I say a hundred times, no, I, I'm I, not I exaggerating. As uh, a parent, the nice thing is that is long enough. It's not like what listening to Elsa over and over and over again. No, uh, there were, there was nothing was let go. Uh, but, there were, but there were there were songs, um, so occasionally be like, "What is this Tom Bombadil nonsense?" But uh, you're like, "Nothing, nothing. It'll be over soon." Um, so I, I'm actually old enough. I remember when you could get book on tape, like actual like tape. I had a couple check, of those. You could check them out from the Cracker Barrel while you were traveling, and it'd be the travel. The Cracker Barrel sort of worked like a blockbuster for for books on tape, and you could pick it up at one when you're traveling and drop it off at the other, and return it. Did they really? Yeah, oh man, they, I didn't know about that. That's awesome. Wow, you are so old, Jr. I know. I'm I'm dying of the baldness. It's it's unreal. Ah, <laughs> uh, the blight. Uh, I mean, my uh, my sons think that I I fought the dinosaurs in the war. If that helps. Oh. <laughs> like no, caveman. Those Neanderthals had to go. But, <laughs> all right. So that's the important question, the religion question. Let's ask the next one, Doc. Okay. So. What was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? This is a that's a tough one. Chronologically, science fiction because I watched I watched Star Wars first, but I still think of myself mostly as a fantasy fan. Um, okay, because most of the hardcore reading that I did uh, was fantasy. I was never like a big Asimov, Clark guy, right? Uh, so even the science fiction I was reading, I'm a huge Frank Herbert fan, and uh, as my my critics are quick to note, um, but uh, so even the science fiction I was reading uh, was very uh, much more on the sort of uh, fantastic end of things. But uh, I spent so much time in Middle Earth, right, and in and a couple other fantasy series, Earthsea for a bit, uh, and of course I, I there was the right age for Harry Potter, but uh, I've since uh, sort of moved on. Um, not from Middle Earth, but uh, uh, but from some of the others, uh, and, and so because you know I, I write books now, I, I tend to associate more with the the books I was reading than the other properties to a certain mm. extent, uh, and so I think of myself more as a fantasy fan. But it was really it really was the the first Star Wars trilogy, 
the 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 originals, which I actually watched on Laserdisc, so I can at, at least one up uh, one up Jr. Uh, there a little bit. Uh, <laughs> so I, I saw the originals before George, you know, mucked with them. Uh, I was probably the last kid in America who did, um, which is why I say orthodox Star Wars fan. But uh, but that was really you know the beginning. So who me. shot first? Uh, it, Han shot only. Um, Greedo didn't shoot in the original. Good uh, I do remember that. He just died. Um, so. Good answer. <laughs> Thank you. This is one that he, this and the pineapple on pizza are very important to him. So. You, you, we're not getting into your heresy tonight, all right, woman? <laughs> Wait, pineapple is Siska pro-pineapple? She's yeah. pro pineapple, and I, oh. not, and I I barely tolerate this. I have to lie to myself and tell me she's real. She's normal. Did my last name not clue you into that being unacceptable? Oh my <laughs> gosh. I can't believe you would betray me this way. I felt like this well before I knew you. Ah, uh, so sad. Sorry. So, so you mentioned that um, that you <laughs> fantasy was your first love. So, do you plan on coming at any point in your writing career and writing fantasy? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, uh, I don't know when because there's always a risk. Um, at least with traditionally published authors, I don't know if this applies as much in the indie space. Although it maybe it applies more in changing uh, tracks and becoming something else. It's like if your favorite metal band suddenly put out a jazz album, you'd be like, "Judas Priest, what is this?" Uh, <laughs> it might be the best jazz album of all time, but uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's not what you wanted, right? You alienate a lot of people. So I'm afraid uh, to make that change immediately. But I do have a fantasy world I've been sitting on for, for a long time. I always, whenever people ask, I, I threaten to pull the map out, but it's tucked in the back corner over here. But I've been, uh, <laughs> I've been working on this setting for a while. Okay. You know, so so one day. readers tend to be genre loyal more than anything, I think. And so they like what they like. And so a lot of people find that crossover isn't there. People like authors or people like Doc that read all over the place are rare. And I think... I, I don't think it's as rare as you think it is. I think numbers numbers suggest otherwise if you track sales. But I, I also think like you get people above a certain age and you rem like it wasn't everything wasn't available online. So like you had to hunt. And I mean, how often as kids did we go to the library? Oh, man, I've read everything here. You don't have anything new yet. Let me go read the damn encyclopedia, you know, because it's got interesting stuff. And so like I find that as things went more digital, it sort of catered more to that niche. And you see a shift in, in the market. And at the very least, right, people will go to an author because that author is their, I don't know, their space opera guy, right? Or this is my my cyberpunk guy or whatever. I don't want, uh, like if William Gibson did epic fantasy, I'd be like, what the heck is, why? But there are some oh. wonderful classic people like Jody or Casey Azell who do they're genre fluid. They go across. Oh, of course. I'm not saying you shouldn't do but, it. I'm just saying I, I think there I are think a lot also, of readers who'd be perplexed, I think, right? I think the difference also for them is they started doing that early on in their writing. Casey just had Jody's like in writer She had two books and one in each genre Casey. right away. What? Casey just has like she has like writing ADD. She just it's like, oh, squirrel, let me write this new genre. <laughs> I'm convinced if you you're not wrong. I'm, I'm convinced if you told her there was a new genre out, she'd be like suddenly thinking of ideas for it if it just came out tomorrow. We could probably meme her into doing creating a new genre if we just probably. like gave her a couple of like pieces. Uh, we, I bet we shot. could get her to do lit RPG. <laughs> that might be our new our new project. But all right, so <laughs> we, we will wait till she gets here 
to uh, to to torture her. We are trying to get her on the episode, people, but she's in Japan and time zones are a thing, so it's it's tricky. But Seska, uh, you've so got one last question because what I is it that you love about the science fiction genre? Because this book really is more science fiction. Yeah, well. It's written like a fantasy novel, but it is a science fiction novel. It, it just yeah. it is very classic, and that's what I loved about Dune and Anne McCaffrey. They're both people who take shut up, Jr. Uh, they're the people who take fantasy tropes and they put them in the science fiction setting, and it's really nice. Well, I shut up, Jr. <laughs> Look at the scroll bar, and you'll understand why I'm telling him. Shut oh, up. <laughs> yeah, there, there it is. <laughs> I said it was only okay. I guess. Uh, <laughs> But uh, but uh, as far as as far as the genre goes, I mean, you get this at bare minimum, right? You're you're playing with big ideas, right? And, and this is another cliche answer, but you're you're talking about, um, you know, uh, how society holds together, what it would look like if things were different, right? And also honor, love, truth, you know, the, the sort of great, you know, questions. But you're also doing it with robots and laser swords and wizards and all. <laughs> and how could you do it without those things? Uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't write any other genre, uh, because real life doesn't have wizards in it, except maybe metaphorically. Um, and they aren't as cool. Um, and, and so to, to offer, uh, you know, a way out of stupid reality to uh, borrow a Simpsons phrase, uh, is, is I think maybe the best thing that we can do as, as science fiction fantasy writers. Cause Lord knows, uh, reality is stupid sometimes, uh, if not all the time. Uh, and so uh, getting out of it for a little while and helping other people get out of it for a little while sure is a blast. Um. Okay, that's a good answer. So <laughs> what was your um, first memory? You said um, that that you remember for the movies, it was the Star Wars, and for the books, it was the fantasy. But was there any engagement before that that strikes you? Uh, games that you maybe played before then, cartoons you watched before? Or is, is your formidable memory? Is it that Star Wars? Uh, those are the those are the big ones, right? But I remember also. I I, I mean, I grew up a kid in the '90s, so there were Disney movies, right? Uh, I was a big fan of Sleeping Beauty in particular, which I know is kind of uh, not cool anymore, but it had a dragon fight in it, right? Uh, unlike most Disney movies, uh, there was there was something for me there. Uh, Saint George approves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I should have worn my my jacket as a Saint George pin on it. That. I, I made my poor mother make me that dress when I was younger. It's it's a great movie. Um, <laughs> so I, you know maybe I could point there. I'm trying to think of some other things. Um, it's a little bit later, but I was a big like Legend of Zelda uh, fan. So I played I played all I still play all those games, um, <laughs> and those are very like you know classic fantasy in their in their in their construction. So all of those things sorted together because um, I also I, I can point to a number of video games that have influenced my writing, um, <laughs> but those are those are later uh, later influences. So to go back, it'd really be those things. Um, okay. So were your parents big sci-fi fans? You think that or their interests influenced you or did you develop that independent? Uh no, they are, but mostly films. Uh my dad likes Star Wars a lot. He's my dad's also a big like actual uh, space science guy. So I think I've seen Apollo 13 as many times as I've seen Star Wars, right? Uh, I get updates uh, on every SpaceX launch from my dad. I don't have to Google anything. Uh he just <laughs> he just messages it to me. I'm like, "Oh, cool. Awesome." You know, my um, my son is going to think that I'm say this about me when because I'm the person who I'm at work 
it's the pandemic and he's at home and I'm at work and I'm like, you need to go put on YouTube live. He needs to go watch this lunch. It's, <laughs> it's cool stuff, you know? It is. Uh, so I, I grew up with a lot of that, uh, cause my dad's an engineer. Um, but my mother was also really into like eighties B fantasy movies. So I got <laughs> like, no, oh gosh, no, they're the best. So I, uh, I've seen, uh, I, every time I get a couple like new friends, I force them to watch the Beastmaster, right? Uh, mm, <laughs> because, because they need to be exposed to it. Um, so, you know, uh, obviously Conan, right? Uh, 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 Highlander was a big one. My mother loves Highlander. So oh, I get I this weird, show. So much fun. This weird mix of like the really technical and uh, actual space flight stuff for my dad and the Beastmaster. Uh, but it was none of it really literary. My parents read to me when I was a kid Harry Potter and things, but uh, I mostly read on my own um, and, uh, and and started reading probably things my teachers uh, wouldn't have wanted me to. You know, I read Lord of the Rings maybe in like second grade. Um, I read it really early, you know, and, and teachers have a weird tendency to be like, oh, that's too, you know, too advanced for you. And they shouldn't do that. Um, it's better to let kids fail at reading than discourage them. Um but uh, I fortunately didn't have that many teachers who said things like that to me. Um, I and so I imagine you would have listened to them. Uh, I know, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> so how did your love of science fiction um, transition into you writing stories, novels? Um, actually, really early too. Um, I uh, you know, we played make believe at recess, uh, not being the sort of people who uh, were really uh, fit for even in second grade, fit for football. Uh, and so uh, while my friends started to age out of make believe, you know, in fifth grade in in middle school, uh, I just kind of kept writing because I've always been like, I like I was the again like the last kid in America who was really bullied for being a nerd before being a nerd was cool. Um, and I, I know there still are kids who are right. Uh, but, uh, but, but it was, it was right as the culture was sort of making that transition to mainstreaming a lot of geek stuff. Uh, but I stayed and kept writing, you know, at recess and uh, I never really stopped. I'd finish, finish a story, right? My book was five pages long, you know, I was in second grade and I would throw it out and, and third grade me would start again, make it to 20 pages because second grade me was an idiot. How dare he think that was any good. And I kept doing that until I finished something that was actually novel length in middle school. Uh, it's unreadable, uh, but I finished it. And then uh, uh, I did that all the way through high school and into college. And then my last year of college, I started interning at Bain. Um, but I was also uh, querying agents because I didn't want to use my internship um, as a sort of uh, nepotism, you know, backdoor uh, kind of thing. So I, uh, I was querying agents traditionally as I didn't know I was going to get hired either. Uh, and I didn't want, uh, it, it also felt inappropriate to like show my boss, you know, I'm writing this book. You're not paying me. Can I, you know? Um, so I didn't do that. And then I ended up getting both a job and a separate publishing deal, uh, right after I graduated, uh, and they were pretty close together, if I recall correctly. The same week, actually. I got the job yeah. on Monday, and then uh, on then Thursday, I sold the book. Um, and so I've had this weird dual life ever since, where uh, you know I, I've had uh, I've had uh, a publisher, uh, and then I've had my employer. And my and Bain has been very supportive of my publishing. You know, uh, uh, they helped me get a lot of the authors who did uh, blurbs for me on the back cover were because Bain helped me, my own publisher. Uh, we got a couple through them, but I think I got twice as many through uh, through my Bain uh, friends as I did. 
through my publisher at the time, which was just awesome. It's been great. Uh, sort of ended up having sort of two author communities as a, uh, well, you know, I've, I've grown up in as a consequence. The book is really, really good, and it doesn't read like a first-time book. Pub. Well, thank you, and it's not, right? It's like you a 30th-time book. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, it is a fabulous one, and I, I do truly enjoy it. And it's actually really awesome to see that they – that some of these authors like David Drake, they're fans of yours, like truly fans of your writing. And so yeah. we're, and that's my brute force segue into talking no, about. We've got one more question. You're jumping so, the gun a little bit. So uh, many, many authors let their real, their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. Uh, you got started writing so young that, I mean, I don't know how much life you have by the time you're 22, but but you managed to get a book out there that people seem to like. So were there any specific formable moments that shaped you as a storyteller? Uh, I can't really think of one, right? Because I do feel weird uh, hanging out with writers like David Drake, right? I wasn't in Vietnam. Um, you know, I haven't been in the military. I haven't been to space. I haven't advised, uh, you know, any governments. You know, I, I work with a lot of writers at Bain who have these incredible life experiences and I just don't, I don't stack up right. Uh, in those departments. Uh, I, I, I am just a kid who read a lot, uh, and who likes writing. Um, and so I, uh, I really have just sort of kept doing the work. Right. Um, but I no, I just an ordinary, you know, ordinary kid growing up in the nineties and the aughts and, um, you know, I went right into the industry. I, I literally, I mean, I was working in publishing before I graduated college and I, I sold the book like two weeks after I got out. So no, uh, you know, some people have plenty of life by 22, but not me. I'm not Alexander the Great. No. Who is really? Who is? Nobody. Um, no. Well, so you're, you're fairly on in the series. So how have you had any really neat things happen from a fan angle any cool fan art a cosplay maybe uh nothing like that but i have gotten you know you, you get these you get these cool letters right uh from people who say things like you know hey um my uh my girlfriend kicked me out of my apartment uh and i didn't have anything except a you know a backpack and i happen to have a copy of the book and that helped me get through you know a couple weeks until i could get back on my feet and you know thank you for that right um, and getting those letters, right, um, is really cool, right? This is probably, it, it's probably cooler than getting the artwork. I have actually, I have gotten a couple pieces of artwork pretty recently and those are cool too, but th those, those actual little bits of, of human connection are really, really neat. And it's nice to know too, because like I said at the beginning, right? Like it's, these are just stories about robots and wizards, right? None of it's, none of it's real. It's the, the dirty secret fiction writers shouldn't say, but none of it's real, but that it that it helps people in in these very specific contexts is really really something, um, and that means a lot to me. Um, and so, um, have you been asked out for your autograph out in public, away from a convention or a regular book signing? Because I know not, you've done not spontaneously, um, but I did have a, a reader who was coming through town and asked if I'd meet him at a bookstore to, to sign, uh, sign for, uh, for Christmas. So uh, I always, I used to, before we were all locked in our houses, uh, I, uh, I used to go to Barnes and Noble and write all the time. So it wasn't out of my way. 
Uh, and that was cool, but uh, it's it's not happened spontaneously. You know, authors aren't visually famous, except maybe yeah. like Stephen King. Um, I guess George Martin. You know, people recognize the hat anywhere, but uh, no, I haven't gotten anything. You know, just like walking down the street. Um, so, have you spotted someone reading your book in the wild, though? Uh, I have actually. Uh, I was at Powell's in Portland. I was uh, on a tour with DJ Butler. We were driving around the West Coast, and I walked up to the sci-fi section to go sign the shelf copies, right? And there was a guy standing there looking through it, and I was like, oh, that one's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I started signing the other ones, and he caught on, and it was it was pretty neat. Um, so I understand, and I, I don't – like. so from the indie side, we don't really deal with this a lot. But when you sign books at the um, – at the bookstore, is there any kind of process? Because don't they have to authenticate that that's the real signature? Don't they have to have some sort of process, or how does that work? No, uh, no, they really don't. Um, you know, if if someone were to walk in and say, "Hey, I want to sign the Bible," they would be pretty sure you weren't, you know, uh, you know Moses, or, or depending on which part you were signing. Uh, but uh, <laughs> if someone comes in and says, "Yeah, I'm that guy," they're like, "Yeah, we don't care." Um, so I usually will just grab the books off the shelf and walk up to the desk and be like, Hey, can I sign these for you? Uh, I'm the author. And if it's the hardcovers, they can at least show them the picture, but I've never been asked for ID or anything. So I just sign the things and go, I'm not suggesting you go pretend to be Brandon Sanderson or anybody. Uh, but, uh, you could theoretically get away with it cause it's not exactly Fort Knox. Um, but, uh, but no, so I'll, I'll just go in and do that. They're usually pretty happy to you know, have something interesting to do. So uh, I will tell you uh, having been, cause I spent two years as a sales clerk at Barnes and Noble, go and tell if you're listening to this and not going, that would be fun as an author, go in and tell them that you're doing it because they'll put the autograph sticker on it. And then there are people who will come in and just buy it because it's signed. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, and sometimes too, the booksellers will uh, they'll put them face out, they'll put them on end caps, they'll oh, put yeah, them on the front table. Um, and especially if you if you're traditionally published and you're just you know starting out, um, that's a really useful way to get a couple extra copies moved. Uh, I, I'm trying to get a lot of our new writers to go and do that uh, more and more, especially coming out of lockdown. Right, the bookstores need a little bit of the boost, and everybody wins in that situation. So um, it's a and it's fun. It's really, it's just fun. So. I, I will say I did influence um, the Cumberland Barnes and Noble enough that they still put Bane books out as defaults. Awesome. Doing God's work, Siska. So. <laughs> I All just right. like the books. <laughs> All right. So since she's distracted, giggling and snorting, uh, do you have any funny or weird interactions with fans since you started writing? Oh, um. Yeah, yeah, I got one. There was a lady uh, from Germany because my books are out in a couple languages who messaged me and you know said you know the usual stuff. I really like your book, um, you know. And then uh, she said at the end, "I want to ask you a question uh, so that that I know no one else will have asked, so that you remember me." And I was like, "Oh no!" And she asked if I was ticklish, uh, and I I'll be damned, but I haven't forgotten that exchange. Uh, that's hilarious and that is well a done, weird Caroline. that is well a done. yeah that is a weird question to get uh you know transatlantically uh <laughs> but uh but it worked i have not forgotten her so so did you answer 
Uh, I did, but I'm not going to right now. Because <laughs> they'll know I'll remember it later. <laughs> when eventually we go and see each other at a contest. Yeah, so, no, no, not revealing my secrets. No. All right. So, uh, there are ways to get you to talk. So this is the part of the interview, dear listener, where we talk about all the wonderful things uh, Christopher Rocchio has written. So we're going to ask you to give us the uh, the highlights of your writing career. Okay. Yeah. So I've only done the one series so far. It's called the sun eater. It's a, uh, it's a space opera, but it's, it's written in the style of an epic fantasy, just in terms of the way the actual like chapters are structured. Uh, you know, the way the characters speak, that sort of thing, but it's set in the far, far future. We're talking like 20,000 years out. Uh, my main character is a, a nobleman comes a knight. His name is uh, Hadrian and he uh, has written these books as a memoir. He wants to be a scholar, Right, and to go out there and seek out strange new worlds and new civilizations. Uh, but he ends up stuck instead in the middle of a war between the human empire and an alien race called the Sielsen. And because it is written as his memoir, he tells us on page one that he is the man who ended that war and destroyed all of the Sielsen. This is him writing his tell-all story because there are things that uh, no one knows, right? Uh, why and how, things like that. I like to say... That it's sort of like Star Wars if Anakin becoming Darth Vader were his best possible option. Uh, the first book's called uh, Empire of Silence. It came out in 2018. Um, Howling Dark is book two. Demon in White is uh, number three. And I just finished a couple weeks ago the first draft of Kingdoms of Death, which is the fourth one. There will be one more uh, after that. Uh, so how did you come up with the idea for this? You told us... Um since, you know, obviously this is the only thing you've written, that makes asking what we're going to talk about really, really easy. But where is it psychedelics, a Ouija board, bad North Carolina barbecue? How did this story idea come to you? Uh, boredom. Uh, I hated math class. Um, you know, Fair uh, yeah. Who so doesn't? I, uh, there, there are a couple real nerds out there who do. Um, I'm the only one in my family who hated math class. Yeah, there. My grandfather loved it and got all up on my case for not being good at it. Um, <laughs> but uh, you're really good at writing, so you know, take that. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm doing okay, but uh, but no, I I just wrote on the back of my notes, right? People, you know, there's that uh, story about Tolkien getting bored grading exams, and he wrote in a hole in the ground. There lived a hobbit on the back of one, and just started daydreaming. I did that, but I wasn't grading exams; I was taking them. Uh, and so my math notebooks pretty often will be, you know, uh, equations on the left side where I'm half-assedly paying attention and a bunch of gibberish about planets and kingdoms and aliens on the others. Uh, I don't know where those notebooks ended up. I assume my mother has them somewhere. But I would um, – I did this sort of in pieces. I don't know when what I was writing became the Sun Eater books because uh, I started out writing uh, literally like a Tolkien copy right? It was an epic fantasy. And then over the years, it slowly turned into a science fiction story. Uh, actually, because of some of those video game influences I mentioned, there's a, a JRPG called Tales of Symphonia, where the big twist midway through, because uh, Japanese literature uh, relies on a big tonal shift in the middle, usually. And so you see in a lot of Japanese games, there's a, a big twist reveal moment midway through and the reveal on this one was you thought you were playing a fantasy game with elves but you weren't dummy uh this is a science fiction story and i realized oh i don't actually have to do one or the other um and as i grew up it, it transitioned into something that looks a lot more like a classic uh you know sort of dune uh even uh john carter jack vance kind of far future 
Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not, John Carter's not far future, but but Vance is. Uh, sort of, uh, they used to call them planetary romances, not romance in the romantic sense, but in the like, you know, romantic poetry, like 18th, 19th century sense, you know, big ideas, big adventure. Um, you know, uh, but they don't call it that so much anymore. We say science fantasy. So it, it sort of turned into that over time. So did you ever get caught uh, doodling instead of taking Oh, sure. Notes? Yeah. Um, in most of my classes, it wasn't an issue because my grades were fine. My math teachers weren't very happy. But the uh, the history teachers are like, well, let it slide this time since you did okay on that last exam. Um, but, uh, but yeah, every now and then it got me in trouble, but uh, but not that often. Well, it looks like it worked out for you in the end. So um, before we dig in, we like to talk about the cover. So while I ask you the question, I'm going to let you answer, and then I'll pull the cover up so the uh, viewers can see it. But did you get to pick the cover for this book, or did the publisher? Uh, it was a bit of both. Um, usually uh, in traditional publishing, the author doesn't get a say really at all. Uh, with Bain, that's the case. Uh, Tony Weisskopf picks the covers. She assigns the artists. Uh, and then uh, you know we go from there. Very occasionally, we'll bring an author in for details. I know like David Mattingly and David Weber worked real close getting the Manticore uniforms right for Honor Harrington. But for, for me, actually, I was really surprised. They asked me if I had any uh, uh, artists, rather, not authors, any artists that I wanted to work with. I gave them a list. I actually got, for the first book, I got the one I wanted, which was uh, Sam Weber, who is uh, no relation to David. Uh, absolutely brilliant artist. Uh, he's done work for, um, he did the Dune folio edition. He did the Gene Wolfe New Sun folio editions. He's done some work for Neil Gaiman. Uh, just really awesome artist. And we went back and forth a lot uh, talking about some ideas. Uh, at one point, the sales force intervened and, and decided we're putting a helmet on him. Uh, no, you don't get to, you don't get a say in it. Um, but there was, right. um, they wanted uh, people to just sort of see themselves in the figure okay. on the cover. Um, so they figured no face would do that and the helmet's cool. So no objection for me. I mean, they did a nice job. Um, but I, I got some input, you know, uh, it was originally a gladiator Thracian helmet, which is the one with the big, uh, uh, longitudinal crest, not like the centurion one behind me. Uh, and I said, no, nah, I don't, don't do the crest. Um, cause I don't like Thracian helmets. And they were like, oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, but there was a little bit of back and forth, but, uh, um, ultimately the publisher was like okay it's time to stop author shut up uh we gotta get this to press so 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 why don't you like thracian helmets i, think uh, I just i just don't think they look cool um i don't like the giant fin uh okay fair enough i like, I like the, the i like the horsehair crest but the big metal fin looks silly to me um all right fair enough fair enough well since you didn't um get to pick, we will skip that question and we'll move to the important one. For the genre that you write in, and I know you're one of the heretics who don't think genre is a thing, but let's pretend for a second that you do no, think no, genre no, no. is a thing. He thinks genre is a thing. He doesn't think subgenre is the way Amazon does them to the little minutia is a thing. That's closer. But what's the, <laughs> what's the question? So what do you think makes a good cover for the genre you write in? Oh, man. Oh, man. That's a good one. Um, I think the thing that makes a good cover generally for a start is that it should be kind of distinctive at a distance. This is especially true in traditional publishing. If you've got a whole bunch of covers lined up on the shelf and you're walking across the store, you want one that people can see, you know, at, at, at 20 paces. Right. Um, and having the sort of monochrome, you know, the, the one color like this, and it's not too cluttered, 
um, I think really works to my advantage because a lot of science fiction covers don't look like these do, right? This looks more like a fantasy cover. Um, and so I think it, it grabs a couple of people who think it's going to be a fantasy book for a second until they see the two moons and the, you know, the laser sword. <clears throat> and, uh, and so I think it stands out a little bit of, on its own, but I do think the sort of color statement uh, and this is true for like any, any cover, right? I think, um, I haven't read them, but like the VE Schwab books where they're all like bright white, you, know, you see those at like a hundred paces. So you're like, what the hell is that? And you go look at it and, uh, whether or not the cover is to your, you know, uh, taste or not, uh, once you pick up a book, the odds, uh, physically pick up a book, the odds that you're going to get it go up significantly. So I think that really helps. Um, but as far as in science fiction, particularly, my personal taste is anything that's not just another another spaceship, right? Every science fiction cover is just a generic spaceship. We do a, we do a lot of those at Bane, and they they work, right? Those they they're people for whom for whom that works. I did not want spaceships on these books because uh, I wanted to do something different, and my publisher was fortunately open to uh, open to that idea. Conventional wisdom says so, says that spaceship ass sells books. Yeah. Yeah, it does, but uh, but um, not all sci-fi is about spaceships. Well, then you have the space marines, aspect. and they throw those on the cover. Well, in this case, space gladiator look, but yeah, uh, it hasn't hurt me. Uh, but it is, it has made its own sort of statement, which I think is, I think has been uh, to my benefit. I haven't had anyone say they didn't like the covers. Um, I think the cover is really great. No. That I'd frame it and hang it in my room if it was my cover. I have oh. the original, actually. Oh, nice. Uh, it's in black and white. He did the color digitally. So there's, I got this black acrylic painting uh, down the hall. Unfortunately, I can't pull it up, but. That's cool though. Yeah. So give us the 30 second pitch about this book. Um, well, uh, separate from the general series pitch, um, which we, we, you know, we talked a little bit about. Uh, this one is sort of a, a classic coming of age, finding your place in the universe story. Hadrian does not want to be who his father wants him to be, so he leaves. Uh, and things do not go well for him, right? Uh, and it, uh, you know, he ends up, uh, you know, very broad spoiler, he has to be a gladiator, right? And he falls into a bunch of uh, weird misadventures, court intrigue. He runs afoul of some uh, some bureaucrats, right? And, and gets involved in a bunch of problems. And then, uh, you know, there are the aliens thrown in there as well. So it, it's all him trying to figure out who he's supposed to be and uh, determining whether or not there is a, a, you know, bigger destiny for him. Uh, whether or not there is is something I leave to, uh, to, uh, to the reader to find out. Although, of course, there are more books, so that should give you a clue. Um, but, so is you know. this Hadrian and all three? No, these are different characters. Okay. Um, yeah, no. Um, it's the Emperor on Demon in White, and who it is on Howling Dark, I won't say. Um, a uh, bit of a bit of a surprise um, when when you get there. Um, we're working on the cover for the next one now, and it's finally going to have one of the aliens on it, which Ooh. I'm very excited about. Um, That's cool. So we'll have that soon, I hope. A lot of people think that this is a very Dune-esque universe. Did you do it on purpose? Was it accidental? Oh no, no, it was on purpose. Um, <laughs> I uh, no, how could it not be, right? I like I said, I've always been a big Dune fan. Um, it's another one I, I read not quite as much as Lord of the Rings, but I read a lot. 
Um, and so I, I love the world, right? I love the big galactic empire. Um, I like the warring houses, the, the feudalism. I like the sword fights, right? Uh, and so I, I took a couple basic world building uh, cues uh, in setting this up. Uh, there are sword fights, there are shields, so that guns uh, aren't as useful. Uh, although they are used way more than they are in Dune, actually. Uh, and so I just, I, I took a couple nods because uh, Frank Herbert has a certain attitude towards heroes uh, and towards great leaders. And it's not one that I agree with. Um, and so I wanted to set up the comparison so that the contrast would become clear as the stories moved on. Okay, um, so how I, does he feel about heroes? Frank does not like them, right? Uh, and this is something that's kind of actually hard to get from the first Dune book because it's mostly in the little epigraphs to start the chapters. But Paul is not the good guy, right, in Dune. So um, now how do you feel about the movie with this? Because I think the movie, the original movie with Patrick Stewart in it, you don't see that. But I think in the miniseries with sci-fi, you see where he yeah, really punishes Paul. It, it comes it comes through a little bit better. I like the miniseries. The production's a little janky, um, but it it's it's a little bit more true to the text. Although I, I I gotta be honest, I don't hate the David Lynch version, but I just like David Lynch so much. What do you think of the new Wharton? That's they're still working on it, right? I'm I'm pretty optimistic. It's yeah, it's in post. They did some reshoots. I don't. It's coming. Well, I mean, out, it I think, has Jason Momoa's abs in it, so it can't be too bad, right? Yeah. Although I don't know, he's that's the one casting choice I'm not sure about. Duncan Idaho, Jason Momoa has like the the acting range of a teaspoon. Um, he's got like, he's got like the one character he plays. It's a cool character, but it's also not Duncan. I guess it is Duncan, but it's not hate, right? It's not, it's not the Dune Messiah Duncan. So if they keep going, I'm, I'm very skeptical. Well, hopefully um, he will surprise us. Yeah. I'm looking forward to be proved wrong. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to clutch my scruples. Um, <laughs> you know, but, uh, and I don't like, it's not like I hate Aquaman or Stargate Atlantis, but, uh, Stargate uh, is awesome. Yeah, Speaking of, damn right. He did a good job in, um, Game of Thrones. So did you like the follow on books that, um, Herbert's son has done? Uh, they aren't, they're not my favorite. I like the prequel ones, the Valerian Jihad. All right. I think if they weren't doing, I would like them even better. Um, I'm not as keen on the sequels, um, but I don't want to speak too ill of so uh, Brian and Kevin. Who do you think influenced you more, the literary works or the media works? From Dune or, from Dune. or just in general? Oh, from Dune, yeah. the, the books, definitely. Um, definitely the books. Because um, like, there's this sort of philosophical through line about uh, the problems of leadership and heroism is something that you don't see – uh, as clear, particularly in the Lynch film, like you said, but it becomes really, really clear in the later books as you start to deal with Leto and Paul's golden path, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I just never found it persuasive because I don't think that you can get away from those great heroes, right? I think that, um, uh, and, the, and, and, and from leadership, I just don't think that everything could just be flat right that people could just exist i think structures get imposed whether we like them or not and, and you have to sort of accept that as sort of a feature of the landscape so if frank herbert was asserting that heroes are bad i want to be saying with these books if i'm saying anything on a philosophical level okay frank i hear you heroes are bad but what if we need them anyway can they still be you know good despite that uh, and that's well, what i yeah what I, I want to try and answer with the story. I, I definitely agree with you. I think in some level we need heroes. We need the example and the idealism. 
Well, you see this with the reaction to Dune, right? Like, especially, I think a lot of people drop off reading Dune Messiah and Children of Dune because it starts to take Paul apart. And in the first book, you never see him do anything that bad. Um, He's fighting against these, you know, terrifyingly awful people that, uh, you know, killed his father uh, and destroyed his, you know, his home, basically. Um, And he's driving uh, them off of a world with the help of the natives, right? Like everything about Paul's actions in the first book is pretty much coded heroically, right? Uh, He doesn't even want power, right? He's he's afraid of seizing everything because he's become this this terrible monster. But then we get to the second book and we still haven't seen him do anything that bad. It's like how Star Wars fans can support the Empire and that like baffles some people, but they don't actually do anything that evil on screen. They they blow up Alderaan, but we have no context for what it is. And it's also a legitimate military target, but I digress. Uh, so let's bring this back to your book. But, <laughs> do you yeah. show when the, your opening makes it almost sound like um, Hadrian. I love that name, by the way. Did he build a wall? He should build the wall. But, yes, yes, um, but. Okay, well, you should you should get on that. But it makes it sound like he's committed some sort of mass genocide almost with, uh, with the way you, you did your intro. So do you yes. actually show him being bad? Because like in Han, for instance, if we go to the Star Wars example, they tell us what a rogue is, but then you see him do nothing roguish, right? Like he's not yeah. doing anything bad. So you, you set up the premise that Hadrian is the not really the big bad, but the guy that did the big bad thing that had to get done. So do you actually show that in action or is that something that happens in the background and you allude to it? Oh, no, no, it's happening. Um, I haven't gotten to that part yet. Like I say, he tells you on page one, he does this thing, right? So it's not a spoiler. I haven't gotten to the actual writing of that part yet. Um, now there is a, like I said as well, right? There's some disjunction between what everybody says about him and what happened, right? Uh, that doesn't mean I'm going to blink necessarily on some of these things. He's done some pretty awful things already. Um, but uh, a lot of his reputation, uh, or not a lot of his reputation, but some of his reputation is exaggerated. Uh, some of it is is hearsay. Some of it is rumor. Some of those rumors he starts himself, right? Um, and so he becomes this sort of weird, you know, shadow by the throne as the, uh, as the series progresses, and people don't know what to do with him, right? Including himself sometimes. Um, you know, and he you know he puts together the the classic crew of like misfits and and castoffs and dropouts and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, people the empire doesn't approve of, and and you know they're the you know the the sort of and they're the the dangerous guys, right? And so he has this sort of cloud over him as as the series progresses. But no, no, he he definitely does some things uh, that he's not happy about, uh, and he sees a lot of things that are also awful because the aliens aren't exactly angels, so. So you have the the armor that we showed briefly has very much a gladiatorial feel to it. And you've hinted that well, you actually said outright that he was a gladiator for a bit. So do you have shades of Spartica in there? Because I noticed you're a history lover as well. Um, where the sla- the gladiators revolt or? or... Uh, no, not so much Spartacus. There is um, There are some Colosseum scenes in a, in a couple of the books um, that are styled after how the Roman contest went. Gladiators, of course, weren't. Uh, weren't slaves themselves. They were professionally trained athletes. They were very expensive uh, to maintain. Uh, that's not to say there weren't slaves who fought in the Colosseum, but they were usually, you know, pitted against gladiators and in you know show contests, right? Same as they'd go out to fight animals, because what the Romans were doing with the Colosseum was not just putting on a show and not just sporting, right? Because when gladiators fought, it was actually, you know, like you know, it, it was a real contest. They didn't die as often as people think, and people were 
you know, trading, you know, stats and bets and things and figuring out, oh, you know, Marcus is totally going to win because, you know, he's he's been he's been doing good lately. You look at the numbers, uh, Stefanis. Uh, but uh, they were also showing off that they were masters of the universe, right? So there's a lot of that uh, that angle too. We're, bring, we're gonna bring in all these weird monsters, and we're gonna bring in some captured Persians, and we're gonna kill them to prove a point, right? About how Romans are in charge, and there's very much that sort of aspect of the the, the arena in in particularly in the first book, um, but not so much the Spartacus slave revolt. Okay. All right, Saskia, the next so, one is yours. What is it that makes your series really stand out and is special? I mean, yes, we understand the Doom stuff, but there's more to it than just Doom, right? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, I, you know, I could talk about my influences all day, but um, the thing <laughs> I think that, that makes it really special, and, and I don't want to pat myself on the back or anything, um, but I, it, it's all written in first person, right? So everything, and that doesn't, that's not unique by any means, but... Uh, that means we get to it's spend. It's not common it, either, though. It's it's not, but we get to spend a lot of time uh, with Hadrian um, himself, right? And so he's writing this at the end of his thousand-year life, right? He's lived a really, really long time. He, uh, nobles in the empire yeah. live for centuries, right? And so he is reflecting with all of his experience on himself at various stages in his life. So when he does something stupid because he's a kid, he says, "Yeah, this was stupid, but I was a kid." And you don't see. A lot of that done uh, in the genre, and certainly not on on this scale, right? These are not small books. No. So we, we spend a lot of time with him. We spend a lot of time with uh, with the people he's with, and and that attention to to person um, is something that I I've tried really really hard to uh, to focus on to spend time with. Um, it's not to say, of course, there aren't cool battles. Um, I think I write a mean sword fight. Uh, you know, uh, you know, weird aliens. I, I like also uh, one of my projects with the series. Each book, sort of, they're all science fantasy novels, but they've all got kind of uh, a different flavor to them. You would call them subgenres. Um, you, you know, uh, but the first one has got the sort of sword and sandal, uh, you know, Roman uh, so gladiatorial it, vibe to it. Uh, the second so one's what, more more cyberpunky. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what subgenre? do you think it fits into or or would we go book by book for you yeah i would go book by book right the second one is is kind of uh kind of more cyberpunk it's also a little more gothic right like mm -hmm. not in the sense of goth music uh more gothic but, on the cover even yeah but it has it's, kind of that ghost in the shell i'm a big fan yeah um and, but it's got it goes more in that direction. You've got the like big spooky place that they're in, um, you know, the the sense of isolation you get from a gothic novel. Uh, and then the third one is more like political thriller, uh, and it's also more of an adventure novel. The fourth <laughs> one's got some dystopia in it, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's because we're looking at different parts of the universe. This is partially why uh, I don't really think of these things as genres. I think of them as sets of tropes. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, because they're not different stories. The story structure is not different. Um, so what tropes do you think you really hit on either in a unique way or just really well? Um, I, I think I'm doing, uh, I think I'm doing the like cyborg stuff differently than a lot of people are. Um, I am very strongly of the opinion that if you start changing uh, the way that your body is is oriented or designed, that it's going to change who you are, right? It's one of the things I like about Spider-Man 2 
is uh, how plugging four arms into his back makes Otto Octavius a different person. Because uh, you see this actually with rats if you give them um, access to uh, implants that make, let them control machines. It changes how they solve problems, and if you take those away, they can't do it anymore. If they've got a way to like open a jar with like a robot hand or something. Then um, you see this too with people who get um, brain injuries, right? It changes who they are in certain ways. And so cyborging yourself isn't necessarily cool. It, it is in certain contexts tantamount to suicide. Um, and so I've got characters who, who deal with that um, in different ways and they'll, you know, change bodies and that changes who they are, right? There's still some parts that are continuous between incarnations, right? But they become different people. Um, and I haven't seen a lot of people doing that, but the science seems to suggest that be the case. Um, so the, the sci-fi community, I've noticed uh, there's a strong love for the transhumanism movement. And it's, it's very popular, but I, like you, I do question how that will change us fundamentally. I mean, if you just look at, you know, any pivotal piece of technology in history and well, how I mean, it's... I, I have a friend who recently this past summer went through pro, prophylactic mastectomies. Um, and it, it was interesting because she had implants put in afterwards, but just the entire psychology about how she deals with her chest really changed and um mm -hmm. and, and so and i mean and it just and she was okay she was comfortable with it it was a choice she chose to make but she, and it changed her in things that she wasn't expecting yeah i hope she's all right uh, oh no she's yeah. she's great it was uh she just has a really bad family history of this so her doctor and her and it was a couple year process right that that she went through and of to make this decision and I, I I was with her throughout all of it. It's so I mean, um, yeah, well, I, I just didn't want to seem insensitive talking right. about how. But no, you know, but I mean, um, she and I talked a lot about how it changed in ways she was. She like she goes, it, it you know, as women, we want to um, cover certain aspects of ourselves, and she's like, it just doesn't feel like it's part of me. It's just different. Oh, so it was very interesting. Yeah. And that, so, and that's not even something that's changing, like actually changing her, her perceptions, like her senses, right? Or changing yeah, her, no, it her just, neurochemistry. It just, she had implants put in afterwards and just yeah. how she, and at each stage, because there's a stage point where you have to do some healing before you can go to the next stage. Sure. Just how we talked about it a lot in between. It was really interesting and it definitely got. Yeah, what but you, you can really you can see right how how something more severe would like radically alter who a person is. Yeah, um, and, and a lot of people are just like, yeah, I'll just get, I'll plug myself into a, a battleship and I'll be the same person. Like that's not how it's going to work. The person you because you're you're not just a, a brain, right? Well, how you react um, is different. Yeah, uh, well, you have you have these different tools plugged in, but but there. Are, you only really think the way you do because you have a body that interacts with the world. When they tried to design AI in the, the back half of the 20th century, they had a lot of problems because the AI couldn't figure out. Um, they thought, like, if we just give them a camera, right, they can see, oh, on this desk here, there's a microphone and some pens and a, a notepad. But they couldn't figure out uh, – they couldn't figure out objectness, right, because they didn't have tools for interacting with the world. And so our – consciousness we don't perceive objects so much neurologically we perceive the way we interact with objects and if you don't have a body right or you have a body that interacts with objects differently it fundamentally alters um your 
method of interacting with the environment and that can have consequences for your personality uh, and for your sense of self in the first place. And so looking at stuff like that with these characters, now Hadrian doesn't cyborg himself, uh, but there, but with other characters, right? Because uh, Hadrian is very uh, skeptical of transhumanism. Um, the whole empire is. Uh, it's one of the things that sets them apart from the other cul uh, cultures in the galaxy. Um, is is something that I uh, I'm really proud of the work I've done with that. I think it's really uh, uh, I think it's really fun. Um, so you mentioned that you had your novels were rather long. So on a scale of Brandon Sanderson to Encyclopedia Britannica, where do your stories range for length? Uh, they're actually sub Brandon, um, but they are uh, <laughs> they're, they're about uh, two hundred and forty thousand words on the small end to three hundred thousand on the on the large end. Okay, uh, for uh, a reader, authors always send out this scale. Of I know. Words. Yeah, I know. So what uh, does that, that is... mean page wise? And I actually have your book, but it is not in this room. So you said how long? We'll say two hundred fifty thousand. It's about two hundred fifty words a page. So I'll get the calculator because I don't do the math. Yeah, either. it's oh, here. Let me do it this way. Uh, yeah, about a thousand maybe. But there, let's say uh, between Order of the Phoenix and A Game of Thrones, the first book. Um, yeah. Somewhere in that range. Um, you made me I, do the math today, Seska, and I am not happy with you. Yes, I win! So, all right, well now, wow, an hour in, but we're going to start talking more in depth about the story. So you told us a little bit about Hadrian and his experience um, coming from privilege to nothing and then rising back up from the ashes like a phoenix. So that's what he did, but not necessarily who he is. So what can you tell us about Hadrian, the character? Well, starting out, Hadrian is a big old nerd. Um, he uh, He really wants to... Uh, get out into the galaxy. He is the son of this really tough uh, provincial nobleman who's uh, trying really hard to uh, expand their family's uh, virtues, get them, you know, their own planet to move out from under the heel of this other house. Um, and Hadrian doesn't want uh, anything to do with that. He doesn't want to be the person who, you know, squeezes his peasants to death to get what he needs. Um, and, and so he's trying really hard to get out of there. Uh, doesn't really fit in with his family or or with the whole culture, really. Um, and he knows there are these cool aliens, and he can't figure out why there hasn't been peace made, right, uh, as, as so many naive young people do. Uh, can't work out why the adults haven't fixed everything. Uh, and so he tries to go out there and fix it, and Lord, you know, he runs into every problem in the book. Uh, but, you know, he... Um, He's been he's been schooled in diplomacy. He speaks a lot of different languages. Very interested in the other parts of the other parts of the galaxy, the human universe, and the aliens. And it's one of the things that really sets him apart with uh, the other people he runs into. Is he actually can speak the aliens' language? He bothered to learn it in school. Um, he has a you know being a nobleman, he has a fancy tutor. Um, most of the like casual nobility are not interested in it. They're uh, you know, they're not trying to be involved in the in the war. That's for the you know the patrician military class, the who are underneath the the Palatine super nobles. Um, but uh, uh, he also is a pretty good swordsman. He doesn't like fighting starting out, but he uh, he has a brother he wants to be better than, um, as as so many of us do. Uh, I love my brothers, but uh, <laughs> you know. But you know which one. Was going to let him beat you know. me? <laughs> he said, but the one you're talking about, he knows who he is. Oh, yeah, no, I know. They they both know. 
but uh, but I wasn't gonna let them. I wasn't gonna let them beat me in a sword fight. No, uh, not with those Star Wars, uh, you know, lightsabers, circa two thousand one. Dude, uh, when you get hit on the hand hard with them, you damn right they do. Um, That's why we wear hand armor, Seska. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, oh man, what else can I say about him? Um, but no, he 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 really does want to make this difference. Uh, but he has to sort of uh, he has to sort of get broken down and and face reality as the series goes on. And he is, uh, I mean, he's pretty uh, he's he's pretty introspective, but he's also prone to these like really like grandiose, over the top, dramatic moments. Where it, like if he can set up the one liner, he absolutely will, no matter how serious the situation is. Um, and th- those scenes are usually fun for me too. Though, in real life, the one liners never come to you till it's wildly inappropriate and the moment has passed. They never. Yeah, you're right. But I'll remind you, he is writing this years later. So whether this or not true. he's reporting accurately is uh, uh, is up to the narrator. reader. Okay, fair enough. So were there any uh, especially memorable secondary characters from when you were writing this? And I realize you're on your fourth book already that's already done. And so pinpointing just book one secondary characters might be difficult. But so just over the course of the series, are there any like especially memorable uh, secondary peeps? Yeah, sure. Uh, so for the first one, uh, first book that is, uh, the big one is uh, is Valka, who's the big love interest for the series. She is a Xeno archaeologist from a different country in the galaxy. Uh, she uh, actually has some of these cybernetic implants. She's got a perfect memory. Um, she can remember everything she's ever seen. Um, so this has some some fun stuff, right? So she actually reads uh, books by just looking at them briefly and then recalling the information, uh, which is kind of kind of a neat trick. Um, so she, there's a bit where she goes through a library, just flipping pages really fast and then, and then leaves. Uh, but she, uh, does not like the empire. She does not like that. Hadrian is this sort of stuffy, uh, aristocrat. She thinks he's full of himself. Doesn't like, you know, social hierarchy. She's a bit of a, a bit of a communist, uh, not exactly, but, uh, she's got a lot of those sorts of critiques of the empire. So she and Hadrian do not get along at first and they, uh, they sort of talk around each other. And those are really fun conversations as they sort of break their worldviews against each other. And, and, uh, and both of them figure out what they're wrong about because, uh, no one is right, right. All the time. I, I don't want my characters to be, uh, you know, preaching at their, at the readers. I want them to both be wrong. Uh, I want them to be characters who, who have these, uh, you know, complex ideas about things, uh, and, and to, you know, not be perfect. And so they, uh, they, man, they don't agree on anything. And it's, uh, that was, that was real fun to do. Um, yeah. And, and she's all, uh, up on the great, uh, you know, alien mystery, right? There's, uh, an ancient civilization that she's been investigating for a long time. Hadrian doesn't know that there is supposed to be an ancient civilization because the empire has been, uh, covering that up. And, uh, and so she, uh, you know, teaches him th- some things, but he also proves that maybe, Hey, uh, noblemen aren't that bad. Uh, maybe the empire has got some points. Uh, maybe sometimes the aliens are bad news. Right. Um, and so that's, uh, that's a really fun, uh, relationship that sort of grows over the, over the course of the books. Um, and, uh, he's got a whole bunch of gladiators that he drags with him when he, you know, finally, uh, pulls himself out of, out of the pit again. Uh, and they're, they're really fun. You know, I, 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 I've gone to a boxing gym or I went to a boxing gym before the world closed, uh, for years. So there's got, they've got a lot of that same, uh, 
sort of uh, sort of presence that you get from people you you know you, you hang out with it at uh, at at boxing gyms and stuff you know kind of rough guys and Hadrian's the you know sort of out of place you know weirdo uh, in the group right and uh, and so that dynamic's fun too um, they sort of learn you know maybe he's not he's not that useless um, you know not too bad with the sword right no um, so. So speaking of the sword, you live by the sword, die by the sword. Does your series have any bad guys that, uh, that you can tell us about, or is the universe sure. itself a bad guy? Uh, uh, the universe itself isn't evil, but there's uh, there is evil in it. Um, no, I uh, the the big one, right? Obviously, are these aliens, right? The Cielsen are a species of uh, purely carnivorous, uh, eight foot tall humanoids that live in these migratory uh, asteroid ship. Uh, clusters that travel uh, between the stars. They will fall on a planet and they will spend years sieging it um, and harvesting whatever they can or whoever they can. Uh, and they've been hassling the Empire now for about 300 years by the time the story starts. Um, and you can see where this might be a problem. And uh, and, and so they've got this, this you know, warrior culture, right? Uh, they don't think like we do. They are aliens. Uh, they can't, for instance, understand the idea of, of reciprocity or trade. They just take things, um, you know, so there's uh, there's some weird uh, alien cultural psychological breakdowns that happen. Uh, you know, it's one of the things Hadrian has to learn to deal with. Um, their, uh, their leader doesn't really show up for a little bit. Uh, is this sort of... Uh, uh, he's sort of like the anti-Hadrian in a way. He is as, as grandiose... Uh, as as Hadrian himself, and they have this this cool uh, sort of mutual respect antagonistic relationship as the series goes on, um, and uh, and and he's been re it it has been really fun uh, really fun to write his name is its name is Sirianni, um, and then there are some human villains as well. Um, without giving a name, there is because it, it, it's kind of a spoiler. Uh, there is a king uh, of this secret uh planet uh there's a group called the extrasolarians they live between the stars uh hiding out uh sort of in the backwoods of the galaxy if you will uh because uh, you know the empire wants all the good star systems with the actual stars that people can you know uh live with and uh the planets that are habitable and nice and uh people who don't want to deal with the empire live anywhere else right and so there's this one uh lost planet if you will the king of which is this uh several thousands year old uh cyborg who has uh been slowly changing uh his nature over the years in order to continue living and he is spooky uh and uh and that was uh that was a real fun fun villain to write uh, and there, of course, you know, there's there's your every you know your your average bureaucrat does not like Hadrian and his his uh, weird way of doing things. And there's some uh, you know intrigue at court. Uh, people uh, people don't trust him. People want him gone because he's too popular. He's too interesting. Uh, he's causing too much trouble. Right. So sort of got villains from all sides, really. I, I do like the villain that sounds like Space Locust. That sounds the coolest. So the uh, speaking of characters, so you, you've put Hadrian through a lot of bad stuff. You as the author and the creator of this world. So if he met you in a back alley, because we like to ask our authors, what do you think he would do to you? I would be dead. Maybe you could last a few rounds. Maybe. Um, uh, maybe, uh, maybe if it were early Hadrian book one, Hadrian, I could maybe a few seconds, uh, you know, a couple, maybe a minute or two tops. Uh, 
but uh, quarantine's really done a number on my condition. Um, <laughs> uh, but by book four, no, I'm dead. Uh, especially after book four, he would not like me. So that's uh, a little bit of a teaser. All right. Oh my goodness. Well, you've already answered describing the universe, so we're going to move on, and 33 is you. So um, it's a series. We've talked about that. Will there be more from these characters? Um, you said book five, but do you think you might do some like novellas, some freestanding ones? Yeah, well, I already have. I did a uh, short, uh, it's technically a novel. It's like 55,000 words, but I did a short novel called The Lesser Devil that's about Hadrian's little brother, Crispin, uh, who's been sort of uh, forgotten about, left at home, left to deal with his own problems. Um, I, uh, I wrote it. Uh, over like uh, over like a week, uh, a couple of years ago, before book two came out, actually, I put it out uh, not too long ago, uh, and I just wanted to do something uh, something lighter, sort of an action story. Uh, he's got to defend his family from some old grudges back at home, and um, and that was really fun. What was really fun about it too is that his brother in that isn't the character that Hadrian portrays him to be as they were, uh, you know, growing up together. So there's a little bit of a disjunction, right, between Hadrian's version of the story and his brother's description of himself. And I yeah. want to play with that, play with that sort of thing, right? Because you, you see that a lot in, like, real histories, right? You got a, one biography that's like, oh, the Spanish were evil. And then you read the next one, and you're like, oh, maybe they weren't that bad. And like, oh, this was written by by uh, uh, by the English. I see. They don't like the Spaniards. That makes sense. Um, you know, and, and so... Uh, uh, I want to play with that sort of, you know, perspective in history when writing these different books. So I'm doing a story now that's written by a historian uh, about uh, a bit from book one, and it does not match book one at all, right? So I like I like to play with things like that. Um, but I'm going to do some other stuff like that moving forward, and some standalone stuff in the universe too. Now, would that be published with Tor as well, or would that be something you throw out yourself? Uh, with Daw, um, and Sorry, it depends. Daw. Yeah, with uh, with the with the, it depends on the length. If it's a full length novel, I'll traditionally publish it. Um, but if it's shorter, because traditional publishing won't really take anything under eighty thousand words, uh, just because that's not what their market is really interested in. Uh, the shorter stuff, I've been indie publishing. Okay, mm -hmm. that's neat. Yeah. So you're going to be hybrid, and that works. Um, so. We've talked some about the universe, but do you have any consistent rules of technology or, I mean, it's a sci-fi book, but you say you have some fantasy. So is there any magic in it? Like, um, well, I don't know if I want to call it magic necessarily. Uh, or but just there, not there, well explained science. There is some stuff that uh, Chuck Gannon and David Weber would give me hell for, um, let's say. Uh, they would not. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but no, I, I try not to break too many too many laws of physics. Um, if I'm going to break something like faster than light travel, right, I'm going to come up with something that sounds relatively plausible, right? Uh, that we use, I, I use a kind of warp drive, um, which, uh, you know, I know you saw the news, they're making some progress on, right, which yeah. is very exciting. Um, you know, so it's not like, oh, you know, we'll just punch it, Chewy. We're going to get to the next planet in 10 minutes. Uh, none of that. Um, <laughs> you know, as useful as that is for film pacing. Um, yeah, but, uh, but no, uh, the thing I maybe I'm maybe most proud of, right. Is I fixed the lightsaber. Um, I've got, uh, cause I love <laughs> lightsabers. They're cool, but I'm not holding a 5,000 degree bar of plasma in my hand. Right. I'm certainly not holding a laser beam and waving a flashlight around cutting my own arms off. Um, so I, I, I've come up with this, uh, this, you know, 
and this is totally speculative, right? But I've come up with this sort of fake metal that uses uh, uh, most matter is uh, three quark, you know, like a protons, three quarks, mm -hmm. neutrons, three quarks. I, it's a, uh, there, there are exotic forms of matter that are four and five quark particles. They tend not to last very long. So I just imagined one that's that's five quark that makes a sort of weird liquid metal. This way I can I can use something that works like a lightsaber that I can retract and do fun tricks with and it won't burn my hand off. Uh, but then I, yeah. but rather than focus on the mechanics of how it works, right? A kind of hand wave that stuff. I'm more interested in how you'd use it and how that changes the sword fighting techniques, right? Uh, and so the sword fighting techniques or uh, sword, sword fighting scenes are more interested in how if you had a sword that could cut in any direction with no force, how would that change sword fighting, right? Um, and those scenes I'm really proud of. Um, but uh, I, I also, uh, even though I'm using FTL, it still takes years and decades to get across the galaxy. So people are freezing themselves. So characters are aging past each other. Uh, okay. And some characters have longer lifespans than others because of their social class and things like that. So there's some weirdness to how time works for various mm -hmm. characters that's been interesting to play with as well. Um, and I think those things um, really help really give help. the universe its distinctive character. So, so do you on. have more you than said. one alien? What? I was going to ask you, you mentioned that people have different lifespans. Do you explain that away? Is it medical nanites? Is it access to better medicine? Um, it's it's a bit of a bit of a lot of things. Um, in the case of um, they're, they're broadly speaking, the Empire is three classes. There are your plebeians, which is uh, you and I, uh, just normal humans. Uh, the patricians are plebeians who have been uplifted. Uh, they've undergone uh, some of its medical nanites, uh, medical nanite surgeries, uh, and other less uh, sophisticated procedures to extend their lifespans. They might live to 200, maybe 250, 300. Uh, and then the palatines, the sort of super nobles that I was talking about, are uh, may live as long as a thousand years, and they are very, very carefully gene tailored um, from uh, conception. Uh, to, to be able to do this. They're so complicated genetically that if they are not carefully uh, monitored all the way up till birth, they'll have serious defects, right? Uh, the uh, fallout of this is that if you are a nobleman and you want to have a kid, you have to have imperial permission uh, uh, because the emperor controls all the gene keys. Uh, and that's how the empire holds itself together, despite there being, you know, decades of travel across the empire, right? You would think it would break down, but it doesn't because all the powerful families need central uh, approval to have children, um, which is an awful way of controlling people. And so if you get on the emperor's bad side, your whole line is ended, um, as, uh, as has happened to several houses. Uh, and so uh, this is one of Hadrian's things too, right, is that he's in love with someone who's not from the empire. So he's not getting any approval to have kids, and it's, it, it really weighs on him. Um, and so they um, – because if, if they tried, you know, normally the kid would have pretty serious issues. And there are characters who are the results of, uh, uh, of those circumstances who have some pretty serious problems, right, um, because of it. And, and uh, as I say, it's a really unfortunate way to – to, uh, to run an empire, but I guess uh, if it holds things together. So you, we've talked about a lot of that, which is great. But, and did you say whether or not we have more than one alien creature? Uh, there are a few alien races. Uh, okay. The Sealson are the big one. Uh, there are a couple others that show up. 
the Seelson are the only uh, aliens in the history of, uh, of humankind, this future history, uh, that have ever been technologically sophisticated on, on our level. The rest are behind us. Uh, usually they haven't even discovered spaceflight yet. Um, so there's one in book one called the Umand who are, as far as we can tell, maybe not even intelligent. Uh, they have some sort of um, weird way of communicating that's uh, almost like they, they sort of think with sound so they can like sync up and communicate with each other, but they have not built any sophisticated civilization. Uh, there is an ancient civilization that is gone uh, that are they're referred to only as the quiet. And I won't say much about them uh, because there's uh, nothing I can really say without spoiling things, except mm -hmm. that they existed at some point. Um, and, uh, there's another species that turns up in book three called the Urktani, who are sort of bird-like, they can fly. Uh, they were kind of a medieval culture that got uplifted and is sort of working in the Imperial legions, um, you know, as, as auxiliaries, basically the way the Romans would bring in, uh, non-Roman peoples and have them fight for them. And if they, you know, did their time, they could become citizens. So, uh, you kind of got, uh, kind of got the whole gamut here. The Sielsen look kind of humanoid, but they don't think like us, the Urktani, don't look human, but we can get along and no mind who the heck knows. Um, so how did you go about creating these guys? Was it whole cloth? Uh, bad sushi? It's closer to bad sushi. Uh, <laughs> uh, you no, know, you get, you get like one idea, right? Um, like, Oh, what if I have one that's got like, you know, uh, three legs and no arms and sort of, uh, makes noise. I don't know. Uh, what do you do with that? And then you sort of grow from there. I knew I wanted ones that could fly cause that would be cool. Um, <laughs> and so I, I, you know, worked on growing, uh, growing the Urktani out of, I, I just wanted bird people. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, having soldiers who could fly without jetpacks seems like a cool thing. Let's do it. Um, got enough jetpacks in science fiction. So, um, you know, I just, you, you start with a seed, right. And, and you work from there. Uh, I'm not one of those people who really, really obsessively world builds for like 30 years and then writes one book. Um, I, uh, I did a lot of that when I was growing up, uh, you know, in school and things. And now I'll just make up stuff when I need it. Uh, cause I got, <laughs> I got stuff to do. Uh, and I made me feel better when Lois Bujold says that's how she does it. She just doesn't change things after it's out. And I'm like, oh, phew, okay, I'm in good company. Timeline um, never did. He never went back and re-looked at things, apparently. Or at least that's what I have been told by people who know more than I do. Yeah, I, I wouldn't know either. That's new to me. But, you know, I, a lot of writers or people who want to be writers get stuck just spinning their wheels thinking, how does the coinage work in, you know, uh, imaginary England? And like, it's probably not going to be relevant. Um, if it is, write it down, but like, don't, don't start with coinage unless, you know, you're going to do a book about it in some way. Um, you know, so. Okay. So, uh, was there anything, uh, as clearly we've been at this for a little bit, so we're, we're winding this show down. Was there anything about the empire of silence or the sun eater series, uh, that we didn't ask you that you want to tell us before we move on? Um, I guess the only thing I should mention is that uh, if you uh, if you want to start the series somewhere, Empire of Silence is probably the best place to do it. You can get that uh, short novel I mentioned, The Lesser Devil, 
uh, for I think three bucks uh, on Amazon. If you want to start out there, uh, get a sense of my writing, get a sense of the world. That's a good way to do it. Uh, and I'm also going to be putting out my first uh, short story uh, ebook sort of bundle here. Uh, if not by the end of March, certainly in April. I'm going to call it Tales of the Sun Eater. It's uh, six reprints that have been in different anthologies I've done for Bane and one all-new story that I really need to finish. Uh, <laughs> uh, I have been dragging my feet since I finished book four. Um, Got You know, book hangovers are bad for readers, but they're about ten times worse when you're writing the damn things. Uh, so uh, as soon as I get that done, that'll be out. Um, you can check me out on Amazon. You can check me out, too, uh, on YouTube at uh, Sun Eater Books. Uh, I do a live stream uh, at least once a month uh, talking to readers and I put out videos about writing, about publishing, uh, how things work. And, you know, I did a, a workshop a couple days ago uh, about outlining because I'm a big believer in outline. So if you're trying to be a writer, I try to do some writing advice online and I hope to see you guys there. So was there uh, any other forms of media? So you've mentioned that you have your DAWs publisher, your ebook paperback, hardback, and in the works. And obviously they've got audiobooks because I've seen them, but are there any other forms of media coming out? Graphic novels, RPG I games? I can see this being a great RPG. Uh, I would love that, but uh, not just yet. Um, I do know some folks in comics, though, so fingers crossed. Oh, that would be cool. Okay. Yeah. So um, that's good to know. And so you, if um, you want to know, about the comics that are coming out. Hopefully RPGs, you can pester him. But first, he's going to tell us how you can find him. So, Chris, Tefer Rocchio, how can they find you? Uh, the best one these days is the YouTube channel. I, uh, I got off Twitter uh, for my uh, sanity and my soul. Uh, but I am <laughs> on Facebook at uh, The Rocchio, T-H-E-R-U-O-C-C-H-I-O. I do not have an easy-to-spell last name. Uh, I should have maybe used a pen name. Uh, my wife keeps telling me, but you can find me on Facebook there. Um, you can check me out at solanempire.com, uh, S-O-L-L-A-N empire.com. Um, check me out there. I got a newsletter, um, and you can uh, send me emails there as well. There's not a letter I haven't answered yet. So, um. <laughs> All right, and you can find us on our website, anchor.fm backslash blasters, tack, and tack blade blasters tack and tack blades anchor.fm uh we've got our twitters at twitter.com backslash sf underscore fantasy underscore show sierra foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show uh we have an email blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com and sometimes we even remember to check it we do have our facebook group is facebook.com backslash blasters and blades podcast there is uh, YouTube channel, and if you're watching this video, you found us. Unfortunately, until we get 100 subscribers, we just have a gobbledygook like somebody took the alphabet soup, spilled it on a piece of paper, said, hey, that's your YouTube link. So if you want to make that easy for you to remember, you can hit the like, subscribe, and follow button over there on the YouTubes, on the interwebs, as the kids are saying these days. Uh, and Seska, it is now time for you to bring it home. Oh, wait. And you could support the show if you want to help us keep the lights on as our uh, buy me a coffee backslash author J.R. Hanley and put in the comments podcast. And all of that will go to the overhead and keep us bringing you these interesting conversations. And now for real this time, Saska. <laughs> well, thank you for spending your time with us. For Nick Garber, who uh, was busy doing something like watching, um, what was it, Justice League, I think he said he was watching, the four-hour thing. So... On behalf of our absentee buddy, Nick, J.R. Hanley, my friend, Chris, 
as well as myself. Thank you for coming, spending time with us. Um, we'll be back next week, same time, including our cheesy jokes, crazy one-liners, and nerd culture, and of course, our love of all things that go boom. All right, goodbye. <laughs>